The title for this evening's talk is Searching for Me. So central to the teachings of his, the Buddha is a constant reminder of the troubles we bring upon ourselves by our relentless search for how to define ourselves. Who the me is. A search that more often than not ends up being backed by fabrication. A search that that has been going on for a long time, of course, and continues not only unabated by this to this day, but also intensified under the auspices of our current me-first culture. As a testimony of this, let me share with you an item that I purchased uh, recently at a shop in Rhinebeck. It's a mug. And I, I don't know whether you can read it, but I'll, I'll read it for you. It'd be better. It says, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. Okay. I'll start by examining how do we go about these two endeavors, finding and creating ourselves. And I will end up, whether you agree with me or not, I don't know, but I will end up that by proposing that the best solution for me, for the Buddha, is neither, but rather to drop altogether the launching of the self. I'll follow that progression, first looking at this invitation and then suggesting to drop it because it's better to describe first what is it that we want to drop before we talk about dropping. I don't know if any of you have heard of a, a world famous Argentinian writer, 20th century Argentinian writer called Jorge Luis Borges. Actually spelled B-O-R-G-E-S. And sometimes it's pronounced Borges in English, but it's really in Spanish, it's Borges. <coughs> he, in a short story, entitled Borges and Me, reflects about the ambiguity of his own self. Here's an excerpt. It, it's written in Spanish, but I translated with some help. He says, I like hourglasses, maps, 
18th century typography, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Stevenson. He, meaning Borges the writer, shares these preferences, but in a vain way that turns them into the attributes of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that ours is an antagonistic relationship. I live, let myself go on living, so that Borges may contrive his literature, and this literature justifies me. It is no effort for me to confess that he has achieved some valid pages. But those pages cannot save me. Perhaps because what is good belongs to no one, not even to him, but rather to language or to tradition. Then goes on, I skip out, and he says again, I shall persist in Borges, not in myself, if it's true that I'm someone. But I recognize myself less and less in his books than in many, many others, other books, or in the laborious strumming of the guitar. Years ago, I tried to free myself from him and went from the mythologies of the shanty town to intrigues with time and infinity. If, if you're familiar with Borges, this makes sense to you, because those are two topics that he's used. But those intrigues belong to Borges now, so I'll have to, I shall have to imagine other things. Thus, my life is a constant flight, and I lose everything, and everything belongs to oblivion or to him. I do not know which of the two of us is writing this page. Even those of us who do not have to contend to the, with the attributes of, of fame, like Jorge Luis Borges, still we often get puzzled by whether or not we are our image. Take me, this guy sitting here in front of you. I can just get, get just as intrigued as Borges about who I am. Take my name for starters. Starters. Should I try to use it to define myself, I'll have to contend with the fact that I have two alternative names. Jose in English and Jose Luis in Spanish. Which of the two is me? And then there is Dr. Rising or Professor Rising both of which I used to embrace, and I now disown. 
they often came with the additional specification that I was a molecular biologist. Today, a, a revised version of me might carry the label of meditation teacher. True, such a label would indicate my public role, my current public role. But should I try to define it, should I try to use it to define it, who I am? I would, in the process, brush aside many other aspects of me. So, okay, enough about who I am. Only that at this point it may be helpful to invite to the podium, right here, my old molecular biologist self to talk about DNA. Ask about who we are, he would have answered, we are our DNA. Here, please allow me to make an aside to clarify, as simply as possible, what's meant by DNA. DNA is a long, very long, I mean, miniature, of course, because it's a molecule, but very long for a molecule, that carries instructions to make all living creatures, ourselves, humans included. These instructions are spelled out using an alphabet containing four different letters. Oh, I'm beginning to sound like my old molecular biologist professor, okay, <laughs> that I was. Anyway, these instructions spell out using an alphabet containing four different letters, that is, subunits. It takes three billion of such letters to specify a human being. Each sentence, each sentence of the instructions of the text is called a gene. Each gene spells out the constitution of the molecules, called proteins, that determine the structure and chemical fun functions of our body. Okay, enough of molecular biology. Sorry if it got a bit too technical, but this technical aside is option, optional. If it does not contribute to the understanding of things, simply ignore it. The basic issue is that by talking like, like I just did, we are asking science to be the final judge of things. But is this fair? Science does not work in a vacuum, after all. It finds its culture and inspiration, sorry, it finds its footing and inspiration in the culture that it's embedded in. Let me illustrate. Three decades ago, I went to spend a year in India. 
At that time, I worked for a couple of months at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore. Now, now it's Bangalore is a basis of much of the digital technology that has also developed in India. Okay. The motivation and goal of my trip was not to do science, but to discover whatever spirituality was. I had no idea. But anyway, that was a stepping stone into the rest of India for me. That's a good strategy, I thought. At the Institute of Science, I was delighted to connect with some fellow workers, fellow scientists, who were also disciples of a very famous guru in India at the time called Sai Baba, whose ashram was not far away from Bangalore, from the Institute of Science. So my friends connected me to Sai Baba, and he invited me to give a talk on DNA to the students at a university that he had established within his ashram. I went and gave the talk. I was listened to very politely. Politely. At the end of my talk, as it's as I found out, it's often done in India, a professor of that university offered a recap of what I had just said. All in English, of course, which is the language that covers all of India. That's common to all of India. But I have pr had problems understanding him. He was summarizing what I said. The problems have nothing to do with language, and everything to do that with the fact that when he spoke of what I had said, he filtered it through the culture that he was embedded in. In this case, Indian culture, and on top of it, the Ashram culture. And so, my the summary of my talk became unrecognizable to me. I thought this was a very powerful lesson in cultural embeddedness. So I think it's worthwhile to look at the our cultural embeddedness of things like the story of DNA. One of the main centers of research in DNA was a Cold Spring Harbor laboratory in Long Island, on a place called Cold Spring Harbor, a little village called Cold Spring Harbor, north shore of Long Island. This laboratory was headed until recently by one of the co-discoverers of DNA called Jim Watson. Interestingly enough, this Cold Spring Harbor lab, eventually headed by Jim Watson, 
was set up on the grounds formerly occupied by the Eugenics Records Office. Now, eugenics means good genes. You, in Greek, uh, root, Greek root for good. Good genes. And the work of that office in the early part of the 20th century often was used to justify racism because it did constantly talk about the good genes or bad genes. And do we have good genes or do we have bad genes? Uh, all this eventually became politically incorrect with World War II because it sounded very much like the kind of conversation that Nazi Germany was encouraging. So the records, eugenics records office was closed. But the underlying mindset was not totally eradicated. In fact, Jim Watson himself has eventually, he did eventually publicly proclaim that both black men and women, black or white, were inferior to white men. Genetically inferior, basically inferior. Eventually, this too led to the removal of Jim Watson from that position, but just kicking the the person who voices opinion publicly out doesn't eradicate the mindset. And the mindset remains as long as I insist that I'm nothing but my genes. Fortunately for science, of late there have been a, a number of exceptions to that rule. That is a rule that DNA has the final word. Among the scientists who worked at the Cold Spring Harbor Lab, there was one that I consider absolutely extraordinary, and I've talked about her before. Her name was, because she died, Barbara McClintock. She was studying the DNA in corn, and she found that the corn DNA rearranges in the course of development in a way that in different parts of the plant get different messages. Because if you rearrange words and letters, of course, you get a different text, a different message. She, she was a, a revolutionary thinker, and of course, like for many revolutionaries, her work was not accepted for a long time. She happened to work at Cold Spring Harbor because she was paid by somebody else, and, and she had been there before, and it didn't look good to kick her out, but nobody paid any attention to Barbara. A few of us did, and I did personally. Um, 
in fact, I lived to go from my lab on Long Island University to my home. I had to pass through Cosme Harbor Lab every day, twice, and often I met with her and we chatted and so on. And this is a story that I think is very significant that she told me once. She said when she was in college, in graduate school actually, uh, she was taking an exam using a, a blue book. Uh, I don't have any idea whether blue books still exist. It's a little book where you put the, wrote the answers. Huh? And she could answer all the questions impeccable, impeccably. She, was, she really knew that she knew, absolutely. And except one. That was the very question on the cover of the blue book. It took her a long time to remember the answer to that question. The question being her name. She was telling me for some reason that story, of course. What I, I, I read in, in her telling me the story is that she was letting me know that she had transcended her ego self, which was very apparent in many other people who surrounded her in that lab or an enemy of all the places. A little bit like the story of Borges, you know, who also couldn't tell the difference between the famous Borges and the name Borges and his real self. So I do understand also why she didn't have any trouble questioning the DNA story, the way it was being used, uh, because she didn't need to use uh, that scaffolding to uphold herself. Um, by the way, the work of Barbara McClintock was very significant and a time came when it couldn't be brushed aside anymore and then everybody rushed to celebrate her, her success in science and they gave her the Nobel, gave her the Nobel Prize in 1983. So. More recently, the revolution initiated by Barbara's work on corn has been extended to humans. Curiously enough, this revolution is an offshoot of the methodology developed for reading our DNA, reading the text of three billion and approximate letters supposed to specify us. Hmm? You know, this is useful for identifying for police work, etc. Find out the 
traces of DNA, a few cells left behind, and then they can read the whole sequencing now. And, uh, and then they have, they have appeared to some contradictions. Come on. This is supposed to be your DNA, and now I get another sample from you. It's different. In the end, and this is, has been discovered in the last couple of years, so I'm not an insider anymore. I, I, I have to read it in places like the New York Times and go to the to the web to find the original articles and so on. But it's uh, it's becoming quite clear and quite accepted that, in fact, each one of us carries not just one DNA, but several. So, in fact, there's no way that you can use DNA to define definitely who we are. Sure, it's not a huge variety, but there's some variety. So, at this point, let me take a few moments to recap what I've been saying so far. I started with Borges, the writer, being puzzled about who he, Borges, was. Then I went to ask the same question about myself. And I embarked in a long discourse about what science has contributed to this topic. Initial science seemed to offer a compelling model of our individuality in terms of our unique DNA text. But it ended up with the unexpected finding that more, than, more often than not, each one of us carries several versions of that text. Along the way, I remarked that while science is very good at dealing with the details and practicalities, when it tries to extrapolate its finding to a larger context, it has to depend on the culture it's embedded in. And when it comes to define who we are, as our mug illustrated, the priority is to create ourselves, to invent ourselves. It says life is about creating yourself. That's why I think the story I shared about Barbara McClintock taking an exam is meaningful. She knew all the answers except her own name. She shared that with me for a reason. She was telling me that the key to wisdom is not so much 
getting the right answers, but deeply knowing who we are, or rather, who we are not. That is, we are not our name. We are not a simple thing. We are complex. Enough of recap now. Let's go back to the Buddha's teaching, which dovetail with all of that. The essence of the Buddha's teaching is that they are meant to guide us to the end of suffering. It is not that they offer a conceptual framework to use as escape route from suffering. Quite the contrary. They invite us to get away from any such framework. Listen to these verses from the scriptures, the Dhammapada in this case. O house builder, Yasin, you will not build a house again. All your rafters are broken, the ridge pole destroyed. Gone to the unformed, the mind has come to the end of craving. The core of those verses is to move on to put an end to craving, to holding on to stuff. And among our cravings, the, the paramount one is a craving for who we wish to be. As the Buddha says elsewhere, and I quote, I do not see any doctrine of self that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair on anyone who clings to it. is addressing this mug. The mug wants us to cling to the self that we create. And so, as we move along the path, we come to realize that we don't need to construct any conceptual edifice to support our journey. Instead, what we do need to do is to allow ourselves to be fully present, for real, with each moment of our life. I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow. I'll continue tomorrow on same note. But for now, let us just sit for a couple of minutes in silence, being fully present with that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.